Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. I am so appreciative of you guys coming and am really blessed by the enthusiasm for us to understand what's going on. Uh, I shared with the with the teaching team and with the staff on Monday, and so I'm going to admit it to you for full transparency. When I caught this, I was I was just sitting, spending some time with the Lord, and I felt like it was just a whisper, but it it was pretty solid in me. And so, uh, but when I caught this from the Lord and then announced it on Sunday, in my mind, I thought it was going to be me and like five Zionists or something that were sitting in the corner. <laughs> And we're just kind of talking about what's going on. And, and as they started telling me people are registering, they're going to come, I'm like, ah, okay, Lord, I need a different grace. And uh, so uh, I'm, I'm pretty much going to stick to my notes tonight, uh, not because I don't have other stuff to share, uh, I really do, but because what, what I have in my heart to get through is, is going to build a framework for us. We're not going to get deep in any of the areas, we, we just don't have the time tonight to be able to delve into different prophetic um, uh, predictions or any, certainly not any political things. That's not really what we're here for. But, but what was in my heart from the beginning and what I'm going to try to do tonight is to help to build a framework. Because any time that stuff happens with Israel in particular, and we'll find out why tonight, scripturally speaking, it, it's like the world just lights up. And all of a sudden, man, everything from politics to prophetic predictions, and they just start going, going crazy. And if, you're, if you don't have a basic framework, it, it can become mind-numbing. It can also produce a lot of fear because people will begin to, to think about, talk about, prophetically predict things that may or may not happen. Some of them are scriptural. Some of them are just assumptions or just that, just predictions. And, uh, and, and you, there's one or two vulnerabilities. One is that we can get so caught up that we just stay on constant edge. We're, we're just, we're, we're, whether you're in fear or you're just anxious, you can't sleep. And, and we don't want that because the Bible says we're not supposed to be like that. Even though things are going to happen, the world's going to bring tribulation over and over. Jesus said, when you see all these things coming, he said, don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Find your confidence in me. I've overcome the world. And so we have to somehow be able to acknowledge, not bury our head in the sand, but acknowledge what's happening in the world. And at the same time, maintain a peace and a confidence and a clear direction from the Lord. This is what the opportunity we have so I don't want you guys to get caught up in the beehive of opinions and all kinds of reports and become super anxious or stressed out. But the, the other thing, it seems to be becoming more and more likely and more and more normal, and that is that we've had so much happening in our culture and our crisis over the last number of years that every time you turn around, there's another, you know, uh, there's another riot, there's another argument, there's another threat, there's another, you know, global pandemic or food shortage or inflation and economics are about to melt down, that part of, part of us just shuts down. And we become emotionally numb. 
And it's not that we're trying to stick our head in the sands. We're just on overload and we don't know it intellectually, but internally we are and we just shut down. Well, we don't want that either, right? So we, so we want to live the life that God called us to. So we're going to build a framework tonight. So I'm going to go over some, some, just some primary biblical concepts and some of it will be relevant to actually what's going on um, and, and, and most of it won't. Uh, let me apologize uh, if, if an apology is warranted because the notes I gave you were more than I anticipated. Um, but as I'm trying to build this, I thought, I, I don't know how to not put in these frameworks. So we're going to look at some stuff last night or tonight. We're going to talk about what's happening in Israel. Or we're going to talk about what, what does it really mean for us as Christians. We are going to look at how it correlates to end time prophecy or does it correlate to end time prophecy. But I'm hoping that we're going to get through that kind of stuff. Maybe that's the kind of stuff that you came for. But let me tell you what I'm more interested in, and I would like to persuade you to begin to be more interested in this as well. And that is, what does the Bible say our response should be? Not just to what's happening with Israel, but our response to all of the stuff that's happening. How do we maintain a strong and a healthy spiritual constitution? So that we, we, we don't become one of the people that Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're, we're just living in the same stress and we're being tossed here and there and, we, and our hearts begin to fail because we're, we're afraid. We don't want to be those people. We want to be people, people that are strong and straight, that others can come and draw from our strength. But, but there, there, are, there are things in the Bible that most of us who have been serving the Lord for a while know, just haven't really paid attention to. And part of the reason is because we lived in a reasonably easy environment to be a Christian. We're not in a nation that persecutes us. We're not in a nation where you can be thrown in jail and your family can be killed. And we're just in a nation where it becomes a little embarrassing sometimes because we might get canceled or somebody might drag us into a conversation that we don't know all the answers. And so that's what we call persecution. And so we don't think about how responsible we have to be to build ourselves up and to live strong from the inside out. And yet as we get into these dark days, and we're in some now, uh, it's going to become not just important, but essential. And that's not me talking only, this is the Bible, what it's teaching us. So, so, so let's start on your notes, and I'm going to try to just kind of stay uh, tracking through. So forgive me if I'm not making enough eye contact I want to stay with the notes so I'm not deviating uh, and get through as much as I can. Whenever Israel becomes embroiled in a conflict, uh, the world's just going to light up. And that they're doing that because Israel's like the center of the clock when it comes to God's time frame for end time prophecy, for, for the events and how they, how they unfold. But it's also important that we as Christians should take notice for, for three reasons. Well, here's number one, because it is central to end time events. So throughout most of the Old Testament, but then it kind of continues on. It shifts a little bit with a New Testament emphasis, but it continues on in the New Testament, uh, even though that the Jews as a nation rejected Christ and, uh, and the New Testament church was born. It comes through the New Testament, goes all the way to Revelation. And, and Israel, or the Bible, continually places Israel at center stage in this last day world time event. Perhaps at some point we'll unfold those because that's another confusing thing. There, there are at least eight different versions. And all of them are credible, by the way. 
at least eight different versions of how this whole thing could wrap up. And so we may, we may look at those at some point uh, and help us to get a framework for those so we can sort all this out. Here, here's the second reason why we, we should be paying attention uh, and we should be leaning in. Because Israel has an everlasting covenant with God. Uh, even though they rejected the Messiah as a, as, a, as a people, as a nation, God's not finished with them yet. And, uh, and in fact, you find out that God is still bent on honoring his covenant with Abraham to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who do not. And as Christians, he doesn't ask us, he commands us to do whatever we can to support and to pray for the peace and the well-being of Israel. And here's number three that really hits close to home that not all Christians really understand, is that as Christians, we're engrafted into that spiritual lineage of, uh, of, of Israel. We are part of Abraham's spiritual lineage. Galatians chapter three and four tells us this. Romans chapter 11 tells us that we've been engrafted into this. And not as a replacement for Israel, but as a temporarily, uh, a temporary assuming the responsibility, the prominent role in advancing the kingdom message in the earth. A lot of what we see in end times is not just about how do we wrap this up so that we as Christians can go to heaven, but a lot of what we see in end times, it's almost like a, like a, a parallel story that's unfolding at, uh, simultaneously while the Christians are moving along a timeline and we're going to spend eternity, God's moving along a timeline where he is disciplining Israel for the last time and giving them another opportunity so that they can, can go on and be in eternity with us and we can all come back together. Again, we'll look at that another time. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. The fact that we are commanded to support Israel to pray for their, for their peace and their well-being, this doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with or approve of every political policy or every military directive that Israel makes, that would be the same with Christians, right? We know that Christians have been redeemed, that God uh, has a covenant with them, but that doesn't mean that all of us Christians are perfect. There's no human leaders that's perfect, and, uh, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't just take uh, at face value that everything and anything that Israel does is sanctioned by God. That's not true. But we do know that overall that God's hand is on Israel and our spiritual connection is, a, is given by the Lord and it comes with a divine obligation by God that we will stay with them, we will pray for them, and we will support them. And so this should cause us to, st- to, st- to sit up and take notice anytime Israel uh, gets into a conflict, but that's especially true when Israel becomes embroiled in, in something of the magnitude that we're in uh, a war. In fact, that'll kind of lead us into this. Uh, Israel's recent declaration of war and the fact that they're at war with Hamas causes this whole scenario to rise to a whole different level. And, and in case you haven't noticed, it sets quite a stir, not only in political arenas, because it involves some of the support of larger nations who've been looming and who've been building credibility and, and in, some, in some ways rebuilding themselves to, to line up on a global stage. But also prophetic voices uh, all of a sudden start lighting up too, particularly those that stay closely connected to and, and are monitoring end-time prophecies and the events. And, uh, and again, because of that, 
all of a sudden the airways just light up from every different direction, everything from political to predictions to prophetic. Uh, so it's important that we have a biblical framework. So let's go down to the first category on your notes, and we're going to look at, at, at what's happening in this war, why is it different than the other conflicts that Israel's been in, who is Hamas, but we're going to kind of look at it from a spiritual and a political perspective. So when, when you look at the Middle East, it, it can be really super confusing and, and, uh, and complex because of all the different groups, but you can really boil it down and, be, and get really super simple. Uh, it's primarily a conflict between two different groups. It's the Jews and the Arabs. Now, the Arabs are fragmented into a number of different nations, uh, and they have kind of what I would, I'll just call tribes that, that all fragment. So it feels like it's very confusing. Like every time we turn around, Israel's in a conflict with somebody else about something else. But it really always comes down to these two things. And some people, especially Christians, want to simplify that and say, well, that's just about the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith, right? That's these two. But, but it's not just that. There's at least three different things that have to be considered that all kind of come together and weave to make up what's happening in the Middle East. And so I want to explain those things to you, but it's really important before we do that we understand a couple of things lest we stereotype, lest we start putting a people group in a place and forget that every people group has its mixtures, every people group has a sliding scale on, on how they view and how they perspe- uh, are in life. And by the way, every people group also has been, uh, also has been in, in, in impacted by the gospel, and every people group has believers. And those believers belong to our family, so we have to be really careful. So, so let me just say a couple of things. Uh, not all Arabs are, are Muslim. We have to understand that. So it's not just about the, the Jewish faith versus the Islamic or the Muslim faith. And, and here's another thing. Not all Muslims are Arab. You, Arabs, you probably know that. Right? But the majority of Arabs in that region seem to be Muslims, and, uh, and many of the non-Muslim Arabs uh, are, are growing. In fact, there's a revival happening now uh, in certain parts of the, uh, of, of, the, of the geography over there that a number of these are having personal encounters with Jesus Christ and are, are becoming Christians. And th- this is like not... As, from what I'm understanding, it's not as much about the preaching and teaching, and it's, it's more so about the personal encounters that they're having with the Lord Jesus Christ and are giving their life to him. Here's something else we need to understand before we, we try to make it just about you know, a Jewish faith versus Christian faith. Uh, there are more non-Arab Muslims in other areas around the world, such as Indonesia and Malaysia, than there are Arab Muslims. Uh, and there's, and, uh, and finally, it's important to remember, not all Arabs hate Jews, and you'll see why in just a few minutes, and not all Muslims hate Jews, you'll see why in just a few minutes, and not all Jews hate Arabs or Muslims. Okay, so, so we want to make sure we take off all the sharp edges, right? We're not narrowing and stereotyping, but generally speaking, historically speaking, it is true that uh, Arabs and Muslims have a long-standing dislike or a distrust uh, of Jews and vice versa, and it's for the following three integrated reasons. The first one you probably see coming, but it has to do with a biblical context. Uh, most scholars see a direct link for the animosity uh, between the Arabs and the Jews that goes all the way back to Abraham. Uh, simply put, the Jews are direct descendants of Abraham's son Isaac, 
And the Arabs are descendants of Abraham's son, Ishmael. And so Genesis chapter 21 tells this story. It's a a great read if you want to take the time of promise and of jealousy and of animosity that all resulting in the foretelling that Ishmael, Ishmael would also be a father of a great nation. But it goes on to say that he would be a wild donkey of a man and his hand would be against everyone, and everyone's hand would be against him, and he would live in hostility towards all of his brothers. In other words, something about that particular lineage, they would be in constant conflict with everyone in the world, but particularly back with Israel. So there is a connection. We don't want to ignore that. But there's another part of this, and that is it's the spiritual conflict that's happening, And these are the ancient roots of bitterness between Isaac and and, and Ishmael that have been accelerated or uh, or, uh, intensified by the religion of Islam. Um, The interesting thing is, and and I haven't read it thoroughly, so I'm, I'm I'm basing this off of research, but I'm confident enough about what I've researched uh, to be able to say this, the Quran for Muslims regarding the Jews have some contradictory passages. And so there are passages in the Quran that Muslims are instructed to treat the Jews as brothers because they have the same father and, and they are of lineage together. But there's other passages in the Quran that commands the Muslims to attack Jews who refuse to convert to Islam. And so, so, so that, that's one major conflict if, if you're uh, fervent and devoted to the Islamic faith. Here's another one, and that is that the Quran introduces a contradictory story to that of the Bible where Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael come from. So the Hebrew scriptures, as we know the story, uh, tell us that Isaac was the son of promise, and thus he was the one in, that inherited all of the promises, including the land that was promised to Abraham and to his fathers. The Quran, however, tells the exact opposite story and said, no, 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 all that's true, but Ishmael was the son of promise. And so that puts them deep into a deep religious conflict that goes all the way back to their holy scriptures, their holy book, if you will. And, and that, that's just this deep abiding religious con- conflict. Here, here's the last one. Uh, the last component here that keeps the, con- the, the animosity going is the political component. And I don't mean politics like, you know, we have the left and the right wing. And I'm talking about the global, uh, the, the global uh, powers that be over all of these years and how they've responded to and stepped in and tried to, uh, to, to negotiate or, or uh, to... Uh, uh, to direct how, how this conflict would happen and what would go on. So let, let me just kind of lay it, lay it uh, a simple one from Israel's point of view or where the Jews and the Arabs are concerned. Uh, as most of you know, or you might, you should, uh, after World War II in 1948, the United Nations gave a portion of land to Israel as a Jewish people. And they formally acknowledged them as a sovereign nation once again, this was, this was unheard of, and it was a prophetic element that God would bring his people back together because they had scattered all over the earth, and in 1948, the United Nations actually gave them a portion of land that we now know as the land of Israel and, uh, and acknowledged them as a sovereign nation. At the time, the land was ruled by, by the British 
and primarily inhabited by Arabs, although one-third of the population uh, living in that land was actually Jewish at the time. But when the United Nations did that, the Arabs protested vehemently. And they did not accept it at all. In fact, so much so that every surrounding Arab nation, uh, Egypt, Jordan, Iraq, and Syria, they attacked Israel the following day. On May the 15th, 1948, they attacked them with everything they had in an attempt to drive Israel out into the sea and to destroy and extinguish the nation of Israel. Miraculously, in, in 24 hours that they were a nation, no time to organize military or anything, but somehow Israel survived. Not only that, but they pushed back the, these opposing nations and, uh, and, uh, and, and they defeated them. Well, since then, the, host- the hostility between Israel and the Arab neighbors have always existed, but they've been stoked. They've been heightened by political rhetoric, by governmental controls and, and the benefits that it's going to be to whatever that, that neighboring nation is, and by the existence of these extreme religious groups such as Hamas that have this continually burning obsession that they're going to wipe out the Zionist entity and they're going to reverse the ruling that was made by the United Nations in 1948. So that brings us to why this conflict is is so different and catches the attention of everybody. And just stay with me. We have to put another block or two in place and then we'll bring it back to the prophetic timeline. But as you know, on Saturday, October the 7th of this year, Israel declared war. And it was, it was, a, it was a monumental de- declaration because it was the first time that it happened in 50 years, almost to the day of the Yom, Yom Kippur War in 1973. And uh, this particular declaration was not something that Israel was planning. In fact, it was provoked by a complete surprise attack that Hamas launched in full view of the world, by the way. Hamas was videoing all of this. And in this attack, Hamas easily and quickly overran many key military targets uh, of Israel with little to no fight. In fact, it's been reported, depending on which news stream, somewhere around 1,500 Hamas fighters invaded Israel through over 40 different breaches in their border fence. And in addition, some of you have seen the the videos of the paragliders that slipped in by air. And uh, and when they did, they easily took out many of Israel's elite soldiers, which just added to the national humiliation, uh, not uh, again, not to marginalize the actual loss of life and destruction. So I saw a couple of reports that put it in in this perspective that helped me. Uh, They said if we were to align the population ratios of Israel for the United States, that what happened on October the 7th would have been like 10 9-11 attacks happening in our nation all at the same time. It was catastrophic for this nation. And this is why Israel is still, it's, it's Israel still reeling. They haven't even got to their sobriety and their seriousness. They're still, and you can hear this in the news reports, that they're still reeling from the shock and from the, the, how surreal this is to them. They haven't even got to the resolve and the grit, although they're getting there quick. 
But Israel's already using terms like this will be known forever as the day of infamy, as the darkest day in Israel's modern history. And there's a lot of statistics you can find from credible news sources that will compare it to the Holocaust, that will talk about the loss of life in one day that uh, was more catastrophic than in, in, in many of the other conflicts that it took years to pile this up in one day. Uh, and so it's really, really important. Uh, and, and the fact that it was launched by Hamas, and uh, a couple of, couple of noteworthy things about Hamas is, number one, Hamas is not one of the Arab nations. So it's not like one of these Arab nations or a collection of the nations decided to attack Israel. Hamas is actually an acronym in Arabic. I won't try to pronounce it, but it, it stands for the Islamic Resistance Movement. And they're actually a well-formed, a well-thought-out uh, group. <clears throat> and they, they've actually written a charter, a fully developed charter. And, and just to try to simplify, uh, the charter emphasize, emphasizes three things. Number one, that there has to be a jihad, which is a worldwide war that cleanses. There has to be a jihad against Israel. This is their resolve. They're, they're, they're figuring it out. They're planning it. They're moving towards that. They're going to figure out and make a way that there's a jihad against Israel. But that's just the first one. The second one is there has to be a jihad against the rest of the infidels. One of the news sources uh, um, quoted one of the Hamas leaders as uh, referencing Israel as the little Satan and the United States as the great Satan because of our stance and our morality and our support of Israel. And then once they've, they've performed jihad against Israel and cleansed the earth, eradicated the, this nation, and they've done the same thing against the rest of the infidels, which starts with Western civilization and our Christian faith and our, our stance towards democracy and then moves out to anybody else who won't accept uh, the Islamic rule, then they're going to set up a global caliphate, uh, caliphate which is basically a, a, an, is an Islamic government, and they feel like that's, that's, uh, that's what their, their calling is, if you will, and that's their conviction. So uh, I saw one report that said it a little differently. It says, uh, it says the Hamas resolve is, first, we're going to kill the Saturday people. That's the Jews who worship on Saturday. Then we're going to kill the Sunday people. That's the Christians. And finally, we're going to set up the Islamic rule all over the world. Now, I hear some groans, so let me just stop and remind us, this is not everybody who, who is Islamic. This is not everybody who's, Eric, uh, who's Arab. But this is a group of people that, uh, that are very resolved. In fact, if you're watching some of the news, uh, I won't go into the descriptives. It, it'll take us off course. But if you're watching the barbarianism, if you're watching... Um, the, the slaughter of, of babies and women and children and doing this right on camera, they have the same resolve and the same belief that ISIS had. And we became well acquainted with ISIS not long ago. It's just that Hamas is the local Palestinian expression of a global jihadist movement that, uh, that has deep religious uh, conviction and has deep resolve to move this to, uh, to another place. Well, when we move that to the Gaza Strip, and we add in some of, the, some of the politics and some of the debates and the chatter that's happening today, another reason gets added into it, and that is this long-standing accusation that Israel is too cold and calculated and too aggressive in their military uh, endeavors. 
that they kill innocent Arab civilians and they do it without discretion. And, and historically, you're not going to get into any war that historically you won't find one or both sides that have inadvertently caused the loss of innocent lives. That, that's, that's true with, with Israel as well. However, their official posture, their stated position is that they do not do that. They're trying everything to not do that. And at times, they've even suffered the consequence of choosing to not step into a mission that could have been very advantageous for them militarily, but the, the risk of innocent life was too great. Uh, but Hamas has a different approach. And again, this, is, this stuff is in their charter as well. But they admittedly will use civilian population as a shield. And they do it against Israel because they consider that any who die uh, on, in, in that kind of a conflict either is a martyr because they are Islamic or if they happen to be uh, a civilian who's not Islamic, then that's just part of the sacrifice that needs to happen for their holy cause. Uh, but at the same time, the other side of the equation is, and anyone who kills any of those people, any of, anybody from Israel kills those, well, that's just further evidence of Israel's atrocities. And so they kind of play both sides of this. In fact, you can read a great historical uh, example of this when in, 19, in 2014, during Operation Cast Lead, where history records that the Hamas leadership intentionally placed its headquarters underneath the main hospital of Gaza. And that put Israel in a very awkward, a very challenging position. Because on one side, uh, if they chose not to hurt innocent civilians, then that means they were preserving the lives of Hamas leaders who would continue fighting that war and then would be able to fight future wars. Or... They could, with one strategic move, they could bomb the hospital, and yes, they would kill innocent people, but they would also take out uh, the, the beehive of the Hamas leaders. Well, Israel chose not to bomb. And of course, that was marginalized and minimized in, uh, in most news reports. Um, but here's the current reports that are coming back, back out, which is one of the reasons why I, uh, I stumbled back on this and went back to read, read the account, is because... Uh, Many of the same Hamas leadership that was in that one, that they could have extinguished and instead they preserved them, are the ones that were instrumental in leading the attack on Israel just a couple of weeks ago. And so they, they're in this, there's this real challenging spot. You see hints of it in something that happened just uh, on October the 13th, not long ago, when Israel gave 24 hour, a 24-hour warning to Gaza for all the civilians to evacuate in order to avoid unnecessary loss of life. <coughs> Pardon me. And at the same time, uh, news reports were that Hamas was unwilling to open those borders and allow people to leave. Now, you can see this as conjecture. You can see this as political um, you know, posturing and, and, and different reports. Um, but in your notes, I've given you some news sources where you can go straight to Israel you can go straight to some Middle Eastern news reports and you'll find that uh, the ones that are not tainted with religious, uh, with religious leanings, but the ones that are really just trying to give straight news, uh, they seem to be supporting exactly what we're hearing. Here, here's a final note in that area. Uh, when, we, when we see the political side and we recognize that we've got this postmodern uh, kind of secular worldview that's just wrapping the globe 
uh, we can hear an ongoing and now a growing narrative around the world, but in the United States as well, that the Arab-Israeli conflict, particularly these particular ones in the Gaza Strip, are simply the long-term consequence of Israel's harsh policies in the Middle East, and therefore it's Israel's fault. But part of the reason I wanted to walk you through this layered because when you hear stuff like that, rather than just either turning it off and saying, ah, oh, that's just, you know, that's just that side, that's just their political view, or buying into it because something was very, uh, was very uh, impacting to you. You heard a, a story and you saw a mom crying and a baby was there and, and I'm not marginalizing any of your intelligence, but, but we're humans and things touch our emotion rather than just buying into that. Recognizing that we've got deep, deep spiritual, deep, deep historical and deep, deep political complexities will at least help you to look a little closer to sort some things out. And, and I, here's what you're going to find in many of those cases. You're going to begin to recognize these hidden root systems that are embedded in people's perspectives and ideologies that show some other orientations. For example, you're going to begin to see a pattern between people that have a, a belief and a devotion to God or people that primarily carry an atheistic or a postmodern worldview. You'll, you'll just see them just, just line up. Uh, you'll also see people that will be on the extreme left versus the traditional right. And I'm not saying that they're always on the right side of that fence. By the way, Israel has extreme left and, and, uh, and right-leaning people as well. It just means something very different there than it has uh, come to mean in the United States. And then there's the last one, this biblical spiritual view versus the political natural view. So again, we're not, I'm not trying to answer every question tonight. I want to give you a framework to say, on one hand, it's not as simple as just the people that are carrying signs and screaming something and, and the pictures that might come up on your laptop or on your TV. On the other side, it's not that we're unarmed. We, we do have information and we have biblical precedent to be able to, to build a framework to say, Holy Spirit, help, help me to sort this out. I don't want to be automated to lean one way or the other. I don't want to stereotype. I really want to be uh, God-honoring here and I'm going to be able to see it from your point of view. And, uh, and some of these things will help, all right? Let me move on to end-time uh, prophetic perspective. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> so the, the question that you're hearing if you're listening to any of the eschatological uh, news, news feeds and you listen to people that, that are living in the prophetic, and by the way, at no point here am I marginalizing or making fun of any of that. I'm not making light of it. I just want you to know that, man, these things really start lighting up. And so you start wondering, well, how does this war connect with end-time prophecy? And, uh, and you're going to be hearing, if you haven't already, a lot about this Gog, Magog attack on Israel uh, that's been foretold in Scripture. And people are looking to see, does it line up? Does this move us in that direction? Are we getting closer? There's some talk about World War III. And we've always heard World War III from a nuclear standpoint that if it ever happens, that's it. We're done. Well, let me just say that's not true. Because if World War III, there's room in Scripture in end time. Thank you. There's room in Scripture in end time events uh, for us to have another world conflict uh, remember, the scriptures were written before we had World War I. 
and we barely got out of World War I and we're, we found ourselves in World War II, we may end up in another world war. And I don't want you to think, well, if that happens, the whole earth is gonna, it's not because there's a timeline that God has set and we're gonna walk through that timeline. But there's a place for us to have more world wars, World War III, more than that, if, if, uh, if that's part of what God understands and foreknows. Uh, or World War III can, all, can also set itself somewhere back in here. It's just not called what we might call it. So Jesus said in Matthew 24, one of the signs of the times uh, of the end, as the contractions start coming and the birth of the next and final uh, time period where we move towards uh, the end time and move into eternity, one of the things are going to be, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And the language there is that it's going to intensify and accelerate, not meaning just one. It means they're going to come in waves. They're going to come one right after another to where we just feel like there, there's this global un- unrest. Safety is going to become an issue. Uh, you know, do, do, can we sleep good at night? And we have to be grounded in what scripture says. So, so we want to talk about some of these things. And so let me kind of start in the middle and work my way back out if I can. Pardon me. Thank you, Dean. So th- when you hear mention of the nations Gog and Magog, uh, they first appear in Scripture in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And then they appear again in Revelations chapter 20, uh, verse 7 and 8. But it, it's kind of sprinkled throughout that. And you're going to hear some people, or I've heard some people, that kind of pull those two and talk about them as their parallel passages. But, but they're not. Okay? You, you don't even have to be a theologian if you'll just stop and sort things out. They're using the same names, but they're not talking about the same thing. They're not the same people. They're not describing the same events. So the first thing that will help you is to keep these two separate. So if someone's talking about Gog and Magog and they're quoting Revelations 20 and they're referring to what's happening here, you need to back up a little bit, listen to them, but back up a little bit and say, yeah, I think you're a little tangled up because Ezekiel 28, and I'm going to show you a little bit why why that's true. In the Ezekiel prophecy, uh, Gog, which is described further there as uh, of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, Uh, is believed to be modern-day Russia. And most scholars seem to agree with that. There's a few that are on the peripheral, but most scholars land pretty firmly on that. But in this particular war, Gog is going to be the leader of a great army that attacks the land of Israel, which this is important, by the way, which at the time that Israel's attacked, Israel's at peace and unsuspecting, which is why the prophetic world lit up when Hamas came in and Israel just didn't even see it coming. And they were able to easily infiltrate and to destroy numerous targets, in many cases without so much as a fight. And so that it wasn't just that Israel was attacked, but it was the fact they were attacked so easily and they, they were in a time of peace and they were relatively unsuspecting. And that's exactly what's going to happen. However, when Gog and Magog attack, they're going to be unsuccessful completely unsuccessful because God himself is going to show up and before Israel can even rally to defend themselves, God is going to defend Israel and show the whole world that they are still his covenant people. Now, here's where the prophetic part comes in. When that happens, there's at least two different potentials that that show up in scripture. 
The first one is before this time that's called the tribulation begins. And just to give you a really short one, the world's going to get to a place where we go through it, where, where there's a seven-year period that happens. For the first seven years, the world exhales. And when I'm talking about the world, I mean people that are not Christians, not believers in God. They're going to exhale because this individual steps up that you and I have heard about called the Antichrist. And all of a sudden, the world's in chaos, and we're headed there fast, and he's going to step up and say, I got it. I know what to do. And the world's going to trust him. And for the first three and a half years, it's going to look like this guy is, our, is the answer. There's going to be this wonderful peace and there, this harmony. Israel will be caught up in this. They will make a covenant with the Antichrist. He'll move into Jerusalem and he'll begin to set up his headquarters right inside of the religious places. And, uh, and everything's going to look fine for the first three and a half years. Right at the three and a half year marks, all of a sudden it's going to change. And he's not going to be this, uh, this man of peace. He's then going to turn and he's going to become a man of war. <coughs> Pardon me. And he's going to uh, begin to oppose all things God and cause everybody to come worship him. And this is where the real conflict is going to happen. So this, this battle with Gog and Magog attacking Israel after Israel's been in a time of peace, one place that it fits, and some people are trying to put it, is before the tribulation begins. And that can be really any time. It doesn't have to be the day before. It can be some time before. And that's where some people are looking at this. And some people are saying, oh, that could be it. But Ezekiel chapter 39 goes on to point out that after the battle, the 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 defeat is going to be so intense that the people of Israel will be burning the enemy's weapons for seven years. And it'll take them seven months just to bury the dead and all of the bodies. And, and that's a really important inclusion because if someone wants to say that this, <clears throat> that this war is going to happen before the tribulation begins or will signal the beginning of the tribulation, then the seven-year time frame seems to require that the battle has to be fought long before that because if it takes seven years uh, to burn the weapons and, and for the bearing, there has to be time for that. And we've only got three and a half years while everything seems like it's good in the tribulation and then it gets bad. So you don't have seven years. So you have to at least back up long enough for all this to happen and everything seems fine and Israel's just rejoicing so they can get all of this cleanup stuff done uh, and, and then they can go into the tribulation. By the way... <coughs> Part of the end time event there allows plenty of room for the rapture of the church to happen there. Some speculate that uh, as a church that we will be raptured and we won't see this Gog and Magog war. That, that will happen and right around the same time, others speculate that no, we will be here for that and we'll see that and we'll be part of the evangelistic team that helps everybody understand that God did this and leads them to Christ, uh, but we're for sure gone uh, before the tribulation. Now, those are just two views. I told you there's at least eight of them and we'll look at that at some other point. So, so the first one is that this war uh, will happen or will mark the beginning of the tribulation. The second, uh, the second version that I've heard already in some of the prophetic chatter is that uh, this war happens somewhere in the first three and a half years during, uh, during the first part of the seven-year tribulation. And, and the reason that, that they say that, they key in on the fact that Israel's at peace. 
And they say, well, we know when Israel's going to be peace prophetically when they sign a covenant with the Antichrist and for the first three years it's going to be look like, man, everything's ready to go. Um, but so it assumes that the security there is the, is, is the first part of the tribulation and they also substantiate that. Some of you might be familiar with Dan, Daniel's 70th week or 70 weeks and you'll see that in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. But again, I want to bring back and say, whether it's at the beginning or whether it happens uh, right there in the first part of the tribulation, um, Gog and Magog are not going to win. Ezekiel 38, 19 says that God will intervene to preserve Israel. And here's some of the descriptive. It said there's going to be a great earthquake, that every man's sword will be against his brother. In other words, it's going to throw Gog and Magog's military into confusion, and they're going to begin to kill one another. And then that God will pour down torrents of rain and hailstone and burning sulfur on, uh, on all of Gog and Magog's troop and on many of the nations uh, that have aligned with him. And so that burning sulfur would be uh, like what we read about in Sodom and Gomorrah. How all of a sudden you've got these giant, some people uh, call them a meteor storm, and, but you've got these giant balls of fire that are coming out and they're literally destroying everything. And that's all prompted by the Lord. Israel's not lifting a hand. There's no other explanation for it and the whole world's going to get to see that. Um, and so that's really important. Now, the second mention of Gog and Magog, again, is Revelations chapter 20. And Revelations chapter 20 talks about another war and another attack that comes against God and the people of God. But this time, it's highlighting not that, that this is this event, but it's highlighting it's the same spirit or the same type of rebellion that will have happened earlier, that now it's happening a second time as this rebellious spirit uh, that is with Gog and Magog are coming together and bringing the nations of the world together to attack God. In fact, let, let me give you the example that'll help you if you're reading these passages or if you hear someone talk about them. Uh, you might have said, or you might hear somebody today talk about somebody who's an evil person or they, they're just you know, involved in bad stuff. They're saying, man, they're the devil. Well, they don't really mean they're the devil. What they mean is that what they're demonstrating are characteristics or behaviors that we would see or the Bible says are similar to the devil. And that's what you have in Revelations chapter 20. John's using Ezekiel's description of Gog and Magog as a reference to portray this final end times attack on the nation Israel. And the difference there is that uh, this particular attack will end in complete destruction of all of the opposing nations. And at the end of it, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. That's not true in Ezekiel chapter 38. In Ezekiel chapter 38, it sets the stage for us to keep moving through the timeline. But this is the very end of the timeline. And so we say, then if, if these seem to be so clear and we can see whether they could be placed or not placed, but it's obvious that the war going on with Israel against Hamas is not Gog and Magog, why do we keep hearing that? Then why are people saying that? Why are people trying to tie it together? And, and simply put, it's because of there's this very strange and some people say first time in history alignment of two of the primary supporters of Hamas behind the scenes. And that is that, and this is, this is well documented, this is not just uh, scriptural or prophetic speculation, but the nation that's funding Hamas is Iran. And, and they're the ones that are giving them all the money and all the things they need to buy the weaponry. And Russia 
is the one that's tr- that has trained their soldiers. And so when you look and you recognize that Gog is a representation of Russia and Magog is a representation of Iran, but, but, but with another conglomerate of other Arab nations that, that side with them, uh, a number of Bible scholars are saying this has never happened before. And so it's not that war. This is not the Gog-Magog war. This is not you know, what officially starts a timeline, but it's hugely significant because it's the first time that we can see a legitimate alignment that's happening that could easily and quickly lead up to this war. In fact, we've got a couple of interesting uh, cards in this game in that Russia has already stated just recently, if the United States jumps in for Israel, they're going to jump in for the Arabs. Not only that, here's what's interesting that I know most of us probably can't figure out, but it was just a couple of presidencies ago that President Obama gave $100 billion in a deal to Iran. And, and, And Iran, around the world, everybody understands they're not ashamed of it. Iran is the number one funding nation that funds terrorists around the world because of their conviction towards this jihad that has to happen. They're convicted about that just like we are, that one day Jesus Christ will rule, will clean the earth, and will rule. They're convicted that Allah will do the same. And so it's not a secret, right? They, they, this is what they're doing. Uh, and Obama signed a contract to give them $100 billion. Well, we know that President Trump came in office and canceled that. But when Joe Biden got into office, the first, one of the first things he did was to reinitiate that contract and give them $6 billion. So here's what's interesting if you're paying attention in the news, and you can place this wherever you want, a spiritual category, the rise of the spirit of the Antichrist, you can put it in a political category, but it just is so interesting and conflicting to me to see our president, Joe Biden, get on a plane and go to Israel to try to negotiate peace while at the same time he's signing a check for $6 billion to fund. But welcome to the world we live in, right? Uh, It's crazy. It's chaotic. It doesn't always make sense. But again, it helps for us to have a framework so that we can understand this. So there's a number of other reasons that I didn't include on your notes and I'm not going to take the time to go through them. Wow, I'm out of time. This is terrible. Terrible. Oh, felt like I was talking for 15 minutes. I know you're not agreeing. It's like it didn't feel like 15 minutes to us. Um, okay, let, let me just move on then. And, and I'm just going to briefly highlight uh, and I'll pray about whether or not we need to come back or I need to at least invite you back for another session. But, but this is really where I wanted to get to for the night. So I at least want to highlight it for you and you can lean in and look at it. One of the things that it tells us as we get into the last days, and and listen to me, around the globe, but particularly in our Western culture, as a church, we're sleeping. We've been rocked to sleep. We've been lulled to sleep because we've been so blessed in the nation. We haven't really had conflict or persecution. We've lived in relative peace. There's been wars in other countries, and yes, that affected some of our family and people that had to go over there, but not on our soil. And, uh, and, and so we've just been kind of rocked to sleep, right? And so we don't stop to think about that when we get into these last days. There's, there's several components that begin to shine in the New Testament. Uh, and Ephesians 5 tells us, wake up, wake up. 
And as soon as you wake up and kind of start shaking yourself, Christ will turn the lights on and you'll be able to see something in full view and you can begin to get back in, into the game the way you're supposed to. But the first thing is for us to realize we, we were born in this time. I mean, we could have been born at any point in history, right? And the Lord Ephesians, Ephesians says that God knew, knew who we were before we were even a thought, before the foundations of the world. And he's the one that would establish this timeline. Okay, I want you born during this particular period of history. We were born in this time, but listen carefully. We were born for this time. And, and we're not just saved from eternal life. That, that's a, a few very, very fundamental truths that we see in the New Testament. But the predominant truths in the New Testament is that we're not just saved from eternal death, but we are saved for a kingdom purpose. We're, we're here. We, we should be busy doing the king's business. Yes, we have jobs. Yes, we want to raise families. Yes, we have other things that you know, we, we get to refill our tanks. And those things are important. All right, they said I can have a few more minutes. Thank you, Brandon. <clears throat> I promise I won't take very long. Brandon, signal me or walk back up here and slap me or something when I'm supposed to be done. So, so we, we have to re- realize we're, we're not just saved from eternal death. I mean, as wonderful as that is, and it's mind-blowingly wonderful, but we're saved for a kingdom purpose. And this is real. We're watching it unfold. And the fact that the Bible told us it was going to unfold thousands of years before and even described it in full detail in passages like Matthew 24 where Jesus said, okay, pay attention. When you see all this stuff happening and it starts accelerating and intensifying, okay, wake up. And Paul said it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's all the other stuff you're going to see and it's going to become some of the most dangerous times to live in and this is why. And we're watching it unfold all, all along, uh, all around us and yet in, in, a, in a very real sense many of the Christians are just... And, and I'm telling you, we, we have to wake up. Because this is the time when we want to begin to raise the bar in our spiritual life. I'm not saying cancel out everything in your life and just go full-blown, you know, into a, to a religious zealot. What I'm saying is we have to recognize the days we live in and we have to raise the bar. And so I, I gave you five there. I'm just going to skim through them really fast. Um, and then you have a, a, a list of prayer points that you can pray. Here's number one, stay in faith. And, and listen, I'm not talking about just stay in the faith. Like this is not a caution against going into deconstructionism. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, making sure that you don't allow your doctrine to drift and you just start watering down the principles of truth, although that's really important. But I mean, it, it's important that we take care of ourselves spiritually, It's amazing to me we spend so much time understanding how to keep our physical health, how to keep our emotional health, how to keep our mental health, and we do all of that pushing to the back burner our spiritual health. And yet our spiritual health, according to the Bible, is the most important thing because the spirit of a man or a woman will sustain them through infirmity. They'll help you fix all the other stuff. But if you don't allow your spirit to grow, your spiritual strength is not a constant. Your spiritual strength is just like your physical strength. You can build it up. You can rest it. You can get it primed and ready to go. And then you can go out and spend a a full day of activity and you're exhausted. Your spiritual strength works the same way. 
You can come to church on Sunday and be like, yeah, this is, I'm, I, I'm saved and I'm redeemed. This is wonderful. And then you have a hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and spiritually you're empty. We, we have to learn to stay in faith. And that comes for, by feeding yourself through daily time in the word. You've got to learn to have some time with the Holy Spirit. I don't mean that to be weird for some of you that don't understand that, but to open yourself up to recognize God loves you and he wants to talk to you, to be attentive when he does say something, when you have a prompting to write those things down, to lean into them, to interact with him and respond. This is really, really important. Psalm 37.3 says, trust in the Lord and do good. Listen to this, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Here's something else. Uh, You need to monitor the information you're taking in. Um, I I try to stay apprised of the news and I try to very strategically and intentionally lean into certain things. But I'm going to tell you there are certain... There are certain times and certain contexts not premeditated always that I recognize, you know what, I need to learn about that. But before I learn about that or before I open up and look at all those pictures that, you know, that my curiosity is going crazy, I need to take some time. I'll do it tomorrow. I need to take some time to get the word of God built up in me so that when I see it, it doesn't plant fear in me. Or it doesn't create frustration in me. Some of us are just taking in information thinking we're being intellectually responsible, but we're being spiritually irresponsible because we're not ready to handle that information and to process it and allow the Lord to speak to us. And we can't just live on these feeds all the time. Uh, there's a number of scriptures uh, Matthew 26, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 6, 22, uh, Proverbs 4, 23 through 25, Matthew 5, 29, 18, 9, Mark 20. All of them say, be really careful about what you hear. Be really careful about what you're letting your in your eyes. Here's another one's pretty basic, although our culture seems to have drift. And when I say culture, in this context, I mean our Christian culture. We've got to come to church. And some of you may not be from Lakeshore. You've you got to find a really good, strong Bible-based church, spiritually vibrant church. If you don't know where one is, I can recommend a really good one for you. <laughs> but listen to me, we, church on the couch, church online while convenient, while relaxed in your PJs with a cup of coffee is not anything close to what the New Testament describes. It, it, was a, it was kind of something that helped us to get through a pandemic while we were trying to figure it out, but it's not what the Bible says. In fact, it says part of we're supposed to be spurring one another on towards love and good works. I was talking to somebody who said, but I can grow in the Lord by myself. Yes, but you can't spur one another on towards love and good works by yourself. You can't. You have to have this interaction doing life together. Uh, you need to engage in the kingdom benefits. We have corporate prayer that happens here on Sunday mornings. The power of praying in agreement, learning that we don't have to pray individually, but we can come together and be encouraged and strengthened by the prayers of others and reminded that God's faithful. We have altar team opportunities. And I, and I talk to some of you. Some of you have needs. Some of you have others who have needs. And every Sunday we line the altar team up and for whatever reason, you're not taking advantage of it. It's like being thirsty and having a water fountain right there. Anybody thirsty? Come on up. And these are scriptural examples that we get to step into. They're normal for the Christian, but we've been sleeping for a long time, serving in some capacity. There's a life flow. We can take it in, but we've got to be able to push it back out again and being part of the body of Christ, realizing that every one of us are one part. And so we we need the body to come together and begin to function. And here's the last one that I think is going to find its way up to the top pretty soon just by virtue of... uh, 
our growth and priority, we've got to learn to be more confident in sharing our faith with other people. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to have answers to everything. But I'm telling you, people are scrambling. People have no idea. And so that's part of that sensitivity to the Holy Spirit, just allowing the Holy Spirit uh, to be able to prompt you. You know that thing that you caught this morning in your devotion? Yeah, this would be a great place to say, you know, I don't know if you're into this or not, but I, I was just spending time in the Bible this morning and I, and I read this. And, and as you're talking, I'm thinking, that's exactly what this guy's talking about. You would have, you, you'd, you'd be shocked at how the Holy Spirit can use those little tiny seeds and either in the moment or collectively bring people to Christ. But we have to open our mouth. And I think about the fact that the gift that we've been given and the consistency of the Holy Spirit, and I know that in, in our heart of hearts, we would never withhold that to anybody, but we let habit and we let fear and we let you know awkwardness keep us from it. But I'm telling you, the stakes are high and we, we have to be about this. Here, here's another one. Stay prayerful. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But, but some of the things that are most precious to me in prayer, and, and some of you have been with us for a while, I, I probably wore it out with you, but I, I have prayer pathways, pathway, pr- prayer that, that I've walked through it so many times that I, I can just take a stroll in the garden and I don't have to be mechanical anymore. It's like I have worn this pathway down. I know where every leaf and every branch and everything is just by virtue of, of repeating it. Passages like Psalm 103. The first six verses, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, I bless your holy name. And I don't rush that. I take some time to let my soul, let it seep all the way down and come back up and remind myself how worthy the Lord is to be blessed. And by the way, when we do that, the Bible says when we we come near to him, he comes near to us. And you begin to sense that. But then walking through all the benefits, reminding myself, Lord, you've forgiven all of my sins. Not just so that now I get to go to heaven, but now I have a righteousness consciousness. I'm not nearly as aware of all of my imperfections, although I remind myself quite regularly. But I'm more aware of what Jesus did to qualify me so that even on my worst day, I can run into the throne of grace and I'm absolutely confident to the bone that he's gonna be so happy to see me. And see, that's a righteousness, that's a gift that we understand, and, but we need to begin to engage this in prayer who heals all of my diseases, who redeems my life from destruction. In any place where you've made a decision, a wrong decision, or you missed an opportunity, or you were a little bit apathetic and you didn't step into something, and because of it, you're in the hole. Financially, maybe, but maybe in a relationship, it's not quite where it needs to be. Maybe in your career, maybe in your own self-confidence and your ability to step out into something. He redeems my life from destruction. Deuteronomy 28 is full of these passages. It says, God wants you to be at the front, not in the back. God wants you to be above, not down below. And part of the redemptive package of Christ is to catch us up, is to fill that gap and bring us back to ground zero again and give us a new head start, satisfies my mouth with good things uh, and, and uh, so that, I'm sorry, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercy and satisfies my mouth with good things. Psalm 23 is another one. So we have to be staying prayerful and that's not just saying prayers, that's just saying in, in this conversation with the Lord and allow him to make these things real. Here's another one, stay aware. Christians fall in two categories. Either they're completely oblivious because, well, God's just going to take care of me, or they're so fearful because they're, they're so focused on all this stuff. Listen to me, we, we stay aware, okay? Not everyone in the world's good. 
Uh, we've got a lot of vulnerabilities right now in our country. Israel just experienced some of theirs where they had this attack and 40 breaches on one day and air gliders. And listen, we've had our borders open for how many years now? Millions, millions of people that have come in the borders. And we have no idea who these people are. We, we do know this because of reports. Many of them are on the FBI's most wanted list. And so they're not just innocent people, but we know this. And, and by the way, that, that brings about the threats. It brings about the, the threats globally, the th- threats locally. And they're, they're not just a few. They're credible. But we have to trust the Lord and we have to stay aware of what's going on and the Holy Spirit will help us to do that. Here, here's another one, stay informed. But Remember, it's the fourth one on the list. You should have on your list there, be intentional about what media you choose. Uh, please don't treat it like, like candy, like just, you know, th- this is fun. I enjoy it because I like their style. Uh, uh, fine. But, but this, this is really sobering, serious stuff. And so here's a few that I've listed there that will give you a more direct feed, a more uh, a straight shot. You can open some of these up and see if, if, they, you know, if, they're, if they're in a way that you can glean from them. Um, and so any of those are also good. Uh, but just pay attention to how you're doing. And here's the last one, and I'm going to close right here. Stay encouraged. And, and here's what I mean by that. I, I think I gave you the full scripture here and I added a few little things in red just so you can let it, uh, I can get you started in letting it speak to you and flower out. But Psalm 121 says this, and this, this was talking to them, but it's also talking to us and I'm ending right here. He says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence come my help. Well, you, you could stop and just let that sink down inside of you because we have a tendency to look for help everywhere else. We appreciate the inspiration that comes from the Bible. We appreciate this religious warmth that we feel when we think, you know, that the, the, we can read the Bible, but we don't really think about the help tangibly comes from the Lord. And yet the Bible says that's absolutely what it's saying. He goes on, he says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And notice this, when you do that, the language changes. This is not just a person saying, this is how I've postured my life. But then it turns around and starts giving the result. It says, he will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Now listen to this. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither sleep nor slumber. And listen to verse five. And by the way, that same keeper, the Lord is your keeper. If, if you think about all of the events that have happened, all of the intentionalities to destroy uh, Israel, even if it's just in some of our more contemporary history, and I'm reaching back to the Holocaust and you know, the war, you know, in 19, the attack in, in 1948, and then another one in 67, another one in 73, and, and all the conflicts that have happened, and, and then just now this war that's declared on Israel. If, if you can't read all of that, and you can't recognize that a strip of land crammed full of people about the size of New Jersey can somehow fend off the rest of the world and survive, you're just not a realist. You don't have to be theological. You have to say, how in the world can that happen? But I'll tell you how, because he who keeps Israel never goes to sleep. And, and we have to hear that and, and look at the, the factual realities, but we have to turn around and then reread it and say, oh, that's the same one that will now allow my foot to be moved. That's the same one who keeps me so that I can sleep really good at night because he's my constant guard and my security system. 
That's the same one who said that the Lord would be my keeper. Notice this, that he'll be your shade at your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. In other words, you're never going to be on the outside. You're inside of the secret place. You're not uncovered. All those are remnants of Psalm 91. When you climb into the secret place of the Most High, you've got you covered. It goes on and says, the Lord will preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. So not just physically, but emotionally. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth, even forevermore, all the way through the end times, when all the craziness and all the cataclysmic stuff that freaks us out when we think about it. But the Lord's going to do this. He's done it for Israel for thousands and thousands of years. He's going to continue to do it for us all the way until he comes back because we're his children, we're his bride, we're his church. And even though this is a horrible time, God's going to get Israel through it and God's going to get us through it, he promised uh, and here's the, here's the, I said I was going to quit, but I'll just point you to this. I won't read it, although I'm super tempted. John chapter, uh, Joshua chapter one, verse eight is so important that we begin to learn the way that we build ourselves up, the way that we let the word of God become real is that we meditate in it day and night. Now there's several things that that helps you. And, and I'll just, I'll say it this way. First thing in the morning, last thing before you go to bed and throughout the day in between. And you say, why is that important? And it tells you why. Because when you meditate it day and night, when you have the word of God that's weaving itself into your perspective and anything that you see and do, it says that this is how you can observe to do according to all that is written in in, in the word. Not just what to do and what not to do, but how do you do that and stay in faith? How do you do that and stay in peace? How do we continue to, to, to be full of good cheer that God's got good things in for us when the world around us is falling apart? And yet this is what it says how you do it. He says, because for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And then God turns around just in case we didn't pay attention, we were sleeping. He says, are you listening to what I just commanded you to do? He said, be strong and have good courage. Do not be afraid or dismayed because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, let me just tell you something that I, I have developed a habit. I, I would be dishonest if I said I always did it, but I don't. Uh, but I, I don't. But but I'm learning to do it more and more often, especially in these days. Uh, and I'll show you how they relate. Um, rather than laying in bed at night just before I go to sleep, thinking about the next day's schedule or whatever television program I just watched and how interesting I thought that was, or or you know letting my mind go somewhere else, I I. I grab a little short portion of scripture and I'll be meditating in that. I'll go to sleep thinking about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. He leads me by still waters. He puts me in this tall grass so that my soul can be restored. And, and I'll be just thinking about that, kind of imagining, putting myself in these scenes and, and, and recognizing how God's really literal. When, let me tell you, when I do that, I've noticed a pattern. Whenever I do that, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I tend to wake up and I'm already in a conversation with God. My brain, my cognitive levels are just now catching up. But deep down inside, it's like we've been in this long conversation and the Lord's already been ministering to me. If I don't wake up in the middle of the night, then it happens to me first thing in the morning. I wake up and God's already here talking to me like he's sitting next to my bed saying, you know, remember that thing you were talking about Psalm 23 last night? I want to talk to you some more about that. If I don't do that, 
then no telling where my mind's going to go. There's a lot of distractions and things. I'm not saying it's foolproof. I'm saying meditating on the word of God predisposes us and opens us up for the Holy Spirit to begin to build us up on the inside, to safeguard our thoughts. Fear starts vanishing away. We start recognizing that God is bigger and stronger and richer and smarter than anything. And that same God promised, I'm going to stay right with you. I'm going to walk you all the way through this thing. You don't have to be afraid. You just need to listen to me and stay with me on that. And I'm telling you, the peace of God, which by the way, the Bible says, passes understanding. Don't try to figure it out. You can't. I don't know why when I'm in a crazy, chaotic, uh, stressful situation, why there's just this peace and this calm. And I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And don't you realize how serious it is? Oh, yeah, totally sober about that. But I just, I'm so confident that God's got a plan and God's going to walk us through this. And that's not something that happens just because, you know, someone spiritual happens because we learn to take care of ourselves and build ourselves up. There's a prayer list there that will help you uh, to start praying for Israel. My suggestion is as often as you can, at least once a day, just read through that. And if you have to just literally say those lines, but use it as a way to begin to prompt yourself and ask the Lord to help you to pray for Israel. I'm sorry that I took so long. Hope I didn't try to rush through too much information, but I so appreciate you guys being here tonight. Let's close in prayer and you'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you that the same God who's been watching Israel for thousands of years is watching over us. Lord, we took in a lot of information tonight and there's so much more that's happening all around us. It's very complex at times. But Holy Spirit, thank you that as we just listen to you and we lean into your word, daily spending time with you, that you'll feed us, you'll help us to understand the things we need to understand and to easily just push the rest out of the way and keep trusting you and walking forward. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're more than enough to give us the peace and the confidence that we need. We love you for it and uh, we're gonna stay devoted to you in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.